Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us now is former acting secretary of the United States Army, John Whitley, uh, who wrote a fascinating piece recently in Breaking Defense about how uh, to look at uh, Formula One, uh, of all things, to help uh, drive uh, digital design, greater innovation, greater speed. Uh, and obviously, uh, it is uh, one of the world's great uh, motorsports, and the United States Army is one of the world's greatest fighting organizations. John, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, it is uh, it is a pleasure having you on the program. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. I don't want to focus the conversation too much on on Formula One, and we'll talk about that uh, in a second. But anybody who knows me knows I'm a I'm a large Formula One fan. Even if I get frustrated with uh, a little bit of their uh, antics, uh, and certainly. Uh, long-time model for uh, extraordinary rapid development cycles, right? I mean, under the pressure of competition uh, and the demand to win. From your standpoint, first explain what the challenge is uh, that you see to stay ahead and to catch up, right? Because we're getting into technology cycles now that are no longer going to be measured in years, but indeed, you know, uh, uh, months uh, and, and and weeks, uh, if not hours, depending on some strategist, right? Once the once the shooting starts, talk to us a little bit about the the staying ahead challenge and how we need to approach it. Well, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head uh, with that. Uh, everybody, uh, your listeners know the story, but I think it's worth repeating, right? That we spent the last twenty years uh, really focused uh, primarily on the terrorist challenge, doing having our men and women in uniform do amazing things in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere around the globe. But while we were doing that, uh, you know, our potential adversaries weren't sitting still. China and Russia were studying us, they were watching us, and they were investing. Um, they uh, they were trying to figure out how they can gain uh, overmatch against us. And and after twenty years of that, you know, we're seeing it in their behavior. You know, Russia and Georgia and Crimea now in Ukraine. Uh, China with Hong Kong, China with Taiwan, uh, China's increased belligerence in the South China Sea. So, uh, you know, we're coming out of a 20-year period where we did do some modernization. We did keep our eyes on, on the broader picture. But the simple fact is we were focused on the terrorist threat. Uh, we're now thinking about what are we going to do about these potential near-fear adversaries? How do we deter them? And if, heaven forbid, we, we have to engage in the conflict, uh, how do we do that? And so what's become a national security imperative is shortening that product development life cycle, you know, getting technology, new technologies, new capabilities into the hands of our warfighters uh, sooner, quicker, uh, from hypersonics to directed energy to, to joint all domain command, whatever it is, it's, it's across the board. It's getting those things into the hands of our warfighters uh, as quickly as possible. You know, we have a timeline. You know, Russia is in Ukraine right now. China uh, has different timelines that different analysts uh, report. Uh, but there, uh, you know, there's a real risk of aggressive action over there. So we need to, to maintain, we need to, to rebuild our overmatch. We need to maintain our overmatch. And we need to deter these conflicts. And if they, if they happen, we need to be there with the best equipment uh, to get the job done. Um, I, and so where does, uh, you know, Formula One play into that? And obviously, right, Formula One um, 
is is a testing ground, right? Not just for AI and data analytics, right? I mean, very few organizations do better at analyzing the data that they pull in as quickly as they do, right? In those two week race cycles. Uh, on the other hand, it's all about digital design, right? Uh, uh, digital twins, uh, threads, additive manufacturing that also play into uh, sort of the wonder of Formula One and how they're able to do the kind of engineering they're able to do in the in the cycles they're able to do it. Talk to us a little bit about Formula One, some of the lessons, what we, we can draw from it and what more broadly we need to draw as military organizations to try to get us to this faster nirvana because everybody has been pushing for this. The administration you served in did, the Obama administration was looking at faster, the Bush administration was looking at faster, the Clinton administration was looking at faster, right? So now we're at four or five uh, administrations in a row that are, that, are, that are trying to build on the fruits of faster uh, and that drive. Talk to us about F1 and some of the other uh, stuff that we need to, to capitalize on. Yep, definitely. So Formula One is a poster child, as you as you said, is a poster child for digital transformation. A lot of the focus has been, well, I, I'll reform the acquisition process. Great thing to do. Glad we did it. Now it's, I'll reform the PPB, the planning, program, budget, execution process. We've got a PPB commission. Great. Good thing to do. I'm glad we do it. But what you, to accelerate that product development lifecycle, you've got to adapt these business processes. So you take Formula One uh, and digital transformation. You've got, uh, they start... Uh, designing a product uh, in the digital space. They build a digital twin. They say, this is a simulation model of what this product will be. They test it. They iterate on it. They can iterate on it in real time. They can do iterations in minutes. Uh, if you, you translate that, you compare that to the traditional process where I design something, you know, I'm using a computer, I'm using computer-aided design, but I'm designing something, I'm printing it out, I'm going to build it, I'm going to test it, I'm going to prototype it, and then I'm going to modify it, I'm going to go back and redo, you know, you think about that analog process in the physical world, uh, we're talking about accelerating that. We're still going to go to the physical world, obviously, we're still going to go to the physical world and test but we're talking about doing so much of that, trying to pull so much of that to the left into the digital space where it can be done in minutes, where it can be done in, in hours as opposed to months and years. So we're gonna accelerate digital design. Uh, then we're gonna try to accelerate as we move into production. We now have a digital thread. We now have the digital information for this product. Uh, we can now feed our robotic, our additive manufacturing processes, our other uh, digitalization of the production process. Uh, we can now produce uh, faster and quicker. And then when you need to make changes at this point, we can make them more efficiently, uh, uh, et cetera. And then you know, when we have a fielded product, uh, this gets to, again, the Formula One example. You know, Formula One doesn't stop once the product's out the door with visualization. They're, when they have the product in operational use, when they're in the middle of a race, they have that digital twin now tailored to the actual production model that's running on the track. They have that digital twin and sensors integrated with sensors on the car, uh, monitoring its performance. So you think about what we you know, we're getting into the science fiction world here. So, you know, we're, we're not here yet, uh, but it gives us something to look to for the future. When we have a platform, a highly complex platform and operational use on the battlefield, we can think about, do we have uh, the digital information in the background back at the home base? Uh, monitoring its performance, trying to ensure uh, that it succeeds in its mission, trying to maintain its survivability. Um, those are the types of things you can do with this type of digital transformation. And then uh, the last I would put would be sustainment. Uh, how do we keep these things running? How do we keep these things operational? How do we improve operational availability? How do we improve readiness? Uh, we have the digital information. We can print out the parts when we need them. We can uh, 
uh, modify the processes when we need to. Uh, so it, it's, it's you know, Formula One gets, gets thrown around as, as this example because it's kind of the poster child out there of, of a successful enterprise that has done the whole thing from start to finish and is using this digital transformation to optimize performance uh, on mission day. The, the question is scalability, right? I mean, access to these good ideas uh, have existed for a long time. You know, just before we started taping, we were talking about how a whole bunch of NASCAR folks, uh, you know, worked with army leadership. And this was at the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. I believe it was around 2004 about how you could do a quick uh, Humvee engine change if you just put a NASCAR approach to it and how quickly the army would be able to recycle and regenerate vehicles. It's not like the army's not an innovative force. The question is, not all of those uh, innovations ended up being adopted. I think we can agree. Uh, talk to us about scaling and getting these ideas from, hey, this is really great, and Vago and John talking about them and agreeing how important they are, into how we fundamentally design our systems for greater supportability, greater availability, uh, and and what we do, John, with the sheer amounts of data we're collecting. You know, I know that you you dealt with this issue uh, when you were in office. Um, right, uh, the United States military harvests vast amount of data, but it's only using a very, very small fraction of that information uh, the way it should to to unlock its true potential. So, how do we scale these? Hey, these are great ideas, and get them actually operationalized. Well, I think it's helpful. I, I, that's the sixty-four million dollar question, and I think it's helpful to start with where we are and what we're doing, and then what we need to do next. So, we are making progress. The first thing to say is you look at uh, an example, GE gives us an example uh, of additive manufacturing of parts for, for, for capabilities and platforms that are already in the force. We know the story here. You take a legacy platform, an older platform, you might not have the production process still running for certain parts or, or it might be limited. Uh, how do you get the parts you need? So GE went in, worked with, with the Air Force, the Tinker, got, uh, got an Air Force part uh, for an F-16, uh, through airworthiness certification last year. They're now working with the Army uh, at Redstone on Chinook and getting a part for the ramp Chinook. So what that does you, that gets you into this, you know, we're in sustainment here. We can go to, we can go to design and development in a minute, but here now we're in sustainment and we're thinking about, we're waiting on parts. We have systems that are down because we don't have the parts. Now we're trying to get those parts there in real time. So how do you take it to scale? So the first thing is, what are we doing? We're doing it. We're doing it part by part. We're kind of in this recertification of legacy parts that were cast or forged or whatever before. We're now moving into a digital process with, with a digital thread that uses uh, additive manufacturing. What do you do next? Well, we need to move this to the left. So you take the ITEP engine, the, the integrated you know, turbine engine program, you start to do that at the front end, and then you start to, to design you know, multiple uh, parts uh, through additive and you, and you build them in at the front end, you get them certified uh, as a package with the whole thing. You take what the Army is now doing with Blackhawk. The Army now has the Blackhawk working with Wichita State to get a full digital, uh, digital twin created for the Blackhawk. Maybe that's going to allow us to then go in and start looking at parts and doing whole systems or subsystems on the aircraft uh, through advanced uh, manufacturing uh, techniques to, to increase the uptime. So, you know, we're doing it right now, part by part. The next steps are getting it at the front end, doing it for whole sets of parts and, uh, and doing it for whole systems, make a more, much more top-down approach of whole systems and subsystems. We have to get that through the certification processes. The certification processes can take long. My, my sense, I'm not an expert 
uh, on the on the, the technical aspects of these processes. My my sense is we don't need new we don't need new regulations for how to certify parts. What we need is is to be able to navigate those processes that we have as efficiently as possible. We need policies coming out that will move that, that provide a guideline. Here's how you navigate this process. Uh, here's how you get. Uh, to the relevant people and how you get to the relevant yeses as quickly as possible rather than being a discovery process where you try to figure it out along the way. I use 53K as a setup before I talk future vertical lift. So, you know, in 53K, you had, uh, you know, as an experiment and as a test drive, you had several of these processes uh, worked out both in the production process and in uh, the design process dealing with the challenges with the three engine integration. Uh, what that did is it, it it allowed for a lot of progress uh, to be made uh, quickly there, but it's then set us up for the future vertical lift program where you're actually able to start with these things, building it from the front end. And Valley of Death keeps coming up, and I think that's uh, you know, a very important issue. It's, it's on everybody's mind, but I also think a lot of the discussion doesn't really dig deep enough into it to really understand it and to think through what the real solutions are. I perhaps am a bit of a contrarian on this topic. Uh, I, I think you have to start with what are we talking about? I, and I think at the strategic level, you probably have two basic places you're talking about. You have, you have a science and technology process uh, that may uh, have a project that fails, a successful project that fails to transition to development. So you have scientists and technologists producing something, proving something out that the developers don't pick up. And the other place you really find it is you have developers that prove something out that's not picked up by the acquisition community and the operational community and fielded as an actual capability. But if you want to start to talk about how to fix it or what causes it, you then also have to put it inside of some context. And so I, you know, there's a few different contexts. One is, you know, a, a development lifecycle, a product development lifecycle that's occurring entirely within one component, entirely within the Army or the Navy, or the Air Force. There you have a, an Army lab uh, that's producing something that may not transition to an Army developer, or an Army developer that's producing something that may not get picked up by the acquisition community. And I think the important thing to stress here is that first and foremost, this is a leadership failure. Uh, a lot of people are talking about it in the context of the PPBE process or in the context of acquisition reform. And I think those are useful and you can certainly make changes in those processes to, to try and minimize this process, the, these problems. Uh, but first and foremost, this is a leadership problem. If a, if a lab uh, is off on a project and hasn't talked to the development community and hasn't uh, solicited whether or not there's interest uh, for this in the development community, then shame on them. I, you know, I think the, the example that's often, that, that I think is, is, is apt is, is a military patrol. Uh, if we think about a company walking through uh, the woods, uh, first platoon followed by second platoon followed by third platoon. If you think about a break in contact uh, that occurs, second platoon falls behind, gets lost, is no longer following the first platoon. Who's responsible for that break in contact? Any military person will tell you the person responsible is the person in front. The man in front is responsible. So if you have an upstream partner that's off doing a project and does not have buy-in and has not talked to their downstream partner, that's a problem. And that's a leadership failure. A second context is sometimes we have, you know, the process split across organizations. You might have OSD, you might have DARPA doing the S&P, or you might have SCO doing the development, and then there's a service downstream. I, again, you know, we can talk about acquisition reform, we can talk about PPBU reform, but if you have a valley of death occurring there, that's largely a leadership vote. Why was DARPA, why was GO doing something not talking to their downstream partners? So I think the real problem with valley of death, uh, what we're seeing now and, and what's, what's most uh, important to be talking about is, is, is a relatively new phenomenon where you now have two things going on. 
you have a lot of uh, investment money, venture capital uh, money flowing into the defense sector. And so you have a lot of private sector companies, particularly on the startup side, developing new technologies, developing new capabilities uh, uh, that are not funded directly by DOD. The second piece to that is you have a lot of expansion in the commercial sector and DOD becoming, instead of being the monopoly buyer, the monopoly funder, just becoming one small player. You know, autonomy would be an example uh, where the broader market, AI is another example, where uh, the broader market uh, is now becoming the leader and DOD is becoming a smaller player. So it's these places where we start to have a real valley of death problem. And there, again, the question becomes, how do you get these early processes, these early developers, these early scientists in these startups or wherever they're at uh, communicating and talking to DOD? And I'd say a lot of the problem there is, is DOD, is DOD answering the phone? Is DOD out engaged with industry uh, learning these things and finding out about these things? Or is DOD surprised when, when, a, when a fully developed product is dropped on their doorstep and now they're stuttering and reacting, trying to figure out how do, I, how do I adopt this? Do I need this? If so, how do I buy it? What contract vehicle do I use? Where do I get the money from? So this is much more about communication. It's much more about following the process through. Uh, in terms of what we need is we need a DOD that's out there, that's talking to these people, that's returning the calls uh, when they say they're, they're working on something. Uh, uh, DOD is not very good at that. And, and what we need is to not overinterpret acquisition law, to not overinterpret uh, other restrictions that makes uh, DOD too afraid to go out and engage and talk to people. Right. So what you're talking about is the cultural uh, piece of this. Uh, mm -hmm. I know that Jim McConville has focused on culture uh, to the admiration of many uh, when he was G1, when he was the vice, and now is the chief. Uh, to address the cultural elements, right? We don't know what the future holds, but if we get the culture right and of speed, of uh, autonomous decision-making, we will, we will be much further along, right? Where are we on the cultural elements of being open to change, open to innovation, being able to embrace it quickly, right? Because the valley of death is everybody's enemy in, in this, of somebody, you know, I mean, I know that there's the, you know, the caricature of the iron major who has the power of no and uses it. Um, how do we get to the power of yes and the mentality of yes, uh, ultimately? Well, I think, uh, you know, then I'd use another example where I'd move back to what we were talking about trying to move left into the development process. So I would use future vertical lift uh, as an example of where we're trying to get through that. I, I would say the Army, I, I'm probably biased, so I'll... I'll I'll, uh, I'll give my, my Air Force and my Navy friends uh, a little bit of a hard time here. I think the Army is one of the most open to these things. Uh, I think we've got some of the best guidance out there. Uh, you look at the added manufacturing guidance for the Army, and then you look at what the Army's trying to do with Future Vertical Lift. This is a program that started in the digital space. Uh, take the FLARA, the first variant out, the future long-range uh, assault aircraft. Uh, the first aircraft out, it's starting in the digital space. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I don't know if, if the technical folks would say it's starting with the digital twin. It's certainly starting with a digital representation uh, uh, of its capabilities. It's being, that digital representation is being used to, to iterate uh, through, uh, through the process. It's being used for the selection process now. Uh, and that's going to create that digital thread that, that tracks then through uh, uh, production and, and fielding uh, when we get there. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not a... Uh, I'm not one of those that, that, that thinks that there's magic bullets out there for how you change culture. 
you know, my view is you change culture by doing it. Uh, Future Vertical Lift will be one of the first major programs in the department that has started in the digital space and is going to run with an unbroken digital thread through its entire product development life cycle. Uh, that's going to be huge uh, if we pull that off. Um, and I think, uh, you know, then how do you change the culture? How do you keep moving? Then you do it with a second program. Then you do it with a third program. Then you do it with a fourth program. So what I would change is, is I would put out guidance or I would, you know, consider guidance at least to say, let's, let's start all new starts this way now. Agreed. Uh, John, uh, I would say from your mouth to God's ears uh, or to Secretary Austin's ears <laughs> or to Heidi Shue's ears uh, or, or to uh, Bill LaPlante's. Thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, great conversation uh, and one that I'd love to continue with you uh, going forward. Thanks so very much for joining us. Great. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.